Welcome to the Sendcast. My name is Dale Pickles. I am the host of the Sendcast and the managing director of B Squared. If you are a new listener, then welcome to the Sendcast. The aim of the podcast is really simple. We want to reach lots of people and help you all learn more about special educational needs and disability. In this episode, we're discussing reducing teacher workload by supporting pupils with SEND from the start. And my guest is Zoe Mather, an education officer from Nason. Zoe has worked in education for over 20 years, working in secondary and specialist settings before moving on to Nason. The Sendcast is created and produced by us here at B Squared. We help schools to show the small steps of progress pupils with SEND make. And we can do this for a wide range of abilities and ages. If you're a primary school in England struggling to show progress or identify where pupil isn't making progress, we can help. We can all help you with the engagement model, with the pre-key stage standards and much more. And if you're a school in Scotland or Wales, we haven't forgotten about you either. Do get in contact. But did you know you can use B-Square's assessment software for more than just pupils with SEND? You can now assess all pupils in a primary school in one system, saving you time and money and simplifying the whole assessment process. Visit the B-Squared website or click on the meeting link in the show notes to book a meeting with me so I can take you through how our assessment software can help your school. Let's get on with the podcast. On this week's show, we're discussing reducing teacher workload by supporting pupils with SEND from the get-go. My guest this week is Zoe Mather, an education officer from Nason. Zoe has worked in education for over 20 years. It seems everyone I'm talking to at the moment has worked in education for 20 years. No one's got to 25 years for a while. And working in secondary and specialist settings, she is passionate about SEND and the provision of resources and support to ensure fair access to all to improve outcomes for learners with SEND. Welcome to the show, Zoe. Hi, Dale. Lovely to meet you. Lovely to be here. Oh, you are welcome. We are seeing a big increase in diagnoses and SEM registers getting bigger. And remember, these two values don't always correlate. One does not mean the other. And this has schools and teachers understandably worried due to the increased workload and lack of support from their local authority and government. Yeah. So it's great to be on, on the show here today, Dale. And it's, it's a really interesting problem. And many schools, I think, over the, over the last 10 years, almost since we had the last code of practice, I've been encouraged really down that route of diagnosis for support, really, rather than diagnosing and responding to needs in the classroom. And partly that's the systems. Partly we've had this medical model of disability looking at, you know, the problem is within the person. But actually we're moving now and I think it's a real impetus to move to that social model of disability and recognising that the problem really is the barriers that society put in place. So, and especially, as we know, cost of living crisis, we're seeing less finances, less support possibly being put in within some of the education system. But the, the rise in this, as you said, diagnosis and the rise of SEN needs, we know the number of three-letter acronyms we now all deal with in those specific diagnoses mean that teachers, especially early career teachers, and now we're talking about a bit of a recruitment and retention issue within schools, those specific diagnoses mean teachers can feel a little bit overwhelmed and feel that they need to be, that they're not an expert in any of these. Do they need to be an expert? Well, yes and no. Yes, information is useful. More knowledge around particular needs really can provide an, an opening to a pathway to support. 
However, really recognising and dealing with those holistic needs of a child or young person is much more important and much more timely for them and their families. As we know, pathways to diagnosis are completely overwhelmed and taking around three years for autistic pathways at the moment. And so again, we have to be thinking that those diagnosis, well, when we get that diagnosis, it's simply an aggregation of needs. It really tells us nothing about the needs of that particular young person or child that's in your classroom. And so the additional requirement that teachers feel that they need to understand has really added to that teacher workload. And let's say a member of staff plans what part of the curriculum they want to teach. And then they have to then consider how to plan that and then adapt it, differentiate it for those different needs in the classroom. And we know from statistics that were released fairly recently in June that from the Department for Education, that 17.3% of pupils in England now are identified with SEM. This is the largest number, largest percentage we've had since the start of the new code of practice back in 2015. So if you have a class of around 30 students, five of those will have identified SEN. And that's identified, that's on the SEN support register or within education, health and care plan. There'll be other students there that will also have unmet needs or undiagnosed needs that we can support within class through through our, our pedagogy. And I'll explore that a little bit as we go through. But if you have one pupil, say, with a physical sensory need, they may need enlarged images or enlarged resources. You may have two pupils with communication and interaction needs. They may need writing frames or the ability to support language with pictures, for example. You might have another pupil with cognition and learning needs and they need support for writing and spelling. Or you may have another pupil with SEMH needs, social, emotional, mental health needs, who also needs to have a checklist there to support their executive functioning so they know what's required of them and how to support that in the classroom. This, you can imagine, adds to workload. And if you're in primary, you have those pupils every day. That's kind of easier to build in. In secondary, that then is the class you have maybe once twice, three times a week. And then in 10 minutes time, the next class comes in with a different set of needs. You can see that that would create that feeling of overwhelm and that feeling of workload adding to that workload. However, we are supporting all students and there are more students in mainstream with more additional needs. And so building some of this into that universal support you offer to all students really does decrease that need for the time spent looking at differentiation, looking at adaptive teaching, looking at adapting your resources, because you start by building that in from the start. So you're considering those young people right from the get-go. What do my, my if we can call it the pupils at the margins, how, how do I support them first? And once that's built in, then you're supporting all. We know that when you put support in for pupils with SEN, it supports all pupils. So really starting from that planning really develops, again, that sense of belonging for those pupils because you've considered them at the start. They weren't an add-on. They weren't something different. So very much thinking about maybe the fundamental problem here is, is the S in SEN. Maybe that, that word special really has reinforced that, that idea that you need special skills and you need special training in order to support these young people in your classroom. And that they, they are sort of special as well and they need something. And we know that the code of practice is different from an additional two. But also the last thing a young person wants to feel is different. 
alas, especially as they get older, especially as they go into those teenage years. Sorry, Dale, you were about to say something. Load of things. I love it. I love the fact you started all of that with a sigh. (laughs) (laughs) (sighs) But it is, it is, is for many, many reasons. But just on that little bit about SEN is in, I've got to get this right. Well, in Scotland and Wales, one is ASN, additional support needs. And the other is ALN, additional learning needs. Not special, additional, which again, removes a bit of that stigma from there. All of my, as I said before we started recording, is I, I'm really lucky I get to look, talk to lots of different people. You all come with different angles, but you're all saying the basic thing, what works for SEM works for all. And whatever your angle, whether we're talking about ADHD, whether you're talking about ASD, whether you're talking about dyslexia, it starts with regulation. It starts with so many things are core. So you don't need to do a load of work on AS, ASD, a load of work or ASC, ASD, ADHD, or dyslexia, or this, or this, or this, or this, or this, or this. Generally, there's often a lot of core things you can do that are going to benefit all identified people who are identified with SEM, but also all those unidentified and also others as well. So there's a load of general stuff that you can do as well. And yeah, the special, that SEND special, to me, it has two things. One, I need to be, you have to be an expert to really say that. But the other thing, it just also scares people away. As soon as you see SEND, you think, oh, that's the SENCO's job, not my job. That's a, that's a big barrier. So even though we have this amazing podcast, even we have all this stuff going on, most of the people who are listening to the podcast are either SEND specialists, working in specialist settings, they're the SENCO, they want to be a SENCO. It's not your ECT, another three-letter three acronym we throw in there. It's, it's, it's not every teacher. And that's the thing is... As you said, 17 point something percent have identified SEN. So therefore, five children out of every 30 have identified. So every teacher needs to hear this. Yeah. But this, we still have the stigma, send, not my problem, because it's not there in initial teacher's training. And I think what you focus on in initial teacher training and your early careers framework training is not focused on SEN. So therefore, that teaches you as a teacher, don't worry about SEN. It's not a big thing. And that has to change. I think, yeah. And being Mason, the National <laughs> Association of Special Educational Needs, this is something we we are, you know, struggling with almost ourselves in that we're, we're very much now about that inclusion as, as that main focus. And that inclusion really supports all young people to get to, uh, and, you know, our motto, helping everyone achieve. We're helping everyone achieve. Now, that is to the benefit of all pupils. And when, like I, I said before, you're support, supporting for our, your young people with SEN, that benefits everybody. Because at some point, we're, at some point, we've all needed some kind of additional support with our learning, whether that's from, you know, a, a family bereavement or whether we are have English as an additional language, not recognised as SEN, or we have an SEN, or we are, you know, LGBTQ+, and that's an area that, actually is having an impact and when we think about that intersectionality as well that intersectionality we can't look at SEN without considering that complex dynamic way that multiple vulnerabilities do overlap or combine or can they can really intersect and deeply impact our individuals lived experience including specific barriers they face so as part of that we're thinking about that whole 
universal support, really thinking about that diversity that we have, that that universal diversity of thinking and human experiences that we can then start to consider holistic approaches that will work for all children. And we know, yes, there is a specific focus on SEN and, and they are a very, they're not an homogenous group. That makes it really challenging. They are a very distinct group and very unique, but all of our young people are unique. But putting things in place and we've got to stop kind of looking at it from that medical model of the problem is the child. And so when you said about diagnoses going up, the problem can be that when we look, so say you've got a young person who's recently got a diagnosis of ADHD, for example, we then start to look at their behavior as, ah, that's their ADHD, rather than looking at the cause or the need that is underneath that behavior and put things in place, rather than looking at the environment, rather than looking at, and in terms of teachers ourselves, even almost sometimes to say, what was it that has has contributed to that behavior. Now, it, the ADHD may be part of that because their needs of their, their diagnosis are not being met. How are we then putting things in place to meet that? And every time a child shows us a barrier to their learning, to their access, that is the point where we should be saying, how do we not put that barrier in place for the next generation, the next child that walks into my classroom, the next person that walks into my school? How do we build that into that universal? And as you talk about that from teacher training, we know that, you know, in everything they've got to learn within teacher training, SEN is a small part of that. There is more in the, the early career framework now looking at some of that SEN and how, understanding that difference. But, how, but what do you build in, Dale? That's the problem, isn't it? You know, do we build in a training module on dyslexia? And, and, and I would say go to our NASEN website and the Whole School Send website. We have lots of conditions specific if you want to go further into a specific condition. We have lots of free online training modules looking at supporting inclusion. But it's about thinking that little bit broader. So more about that humanistic approach. So thinking about you as an empathetic, compassionate teacher, knowing and understanding your pupils, where their starting point is and working it from there. It could be, we know as from the exclusion statistics as well that SEN is massively overrepresented there. So these barriers that they're coming up against need to be identified and we need to be developing that into more of that universal provision as well. So really enabling school to be a place where difference is acknowledged and yes. celebrated and is fundamental to that human development and really recognising the inherent variability is within all young people and really providing that support so everyone can achieve. But that's not to underplay difficulties, sorry, that young people have and that, that having that diagnosis is really, can be really key to them understanding more about themselves. I'm not calling for a move, just make this really clear for people listening. I'm not calling for removing diagnosis. However, we are seeing a rise in young people getting more than one diagnosis. So we do have to keep questioning how useful that is in terms of the, the provision of support, in terms of them understandings. But, you know, really being able to think about the environment that is key and something that schools have complete control over that we can make these more inclusive by design. So rather than planning for that mythical average young person in the class, that, that middle student, you know, and as an ex-maths teacher, that average <laughs> that doesn't exist, you know, we plan that flexibility and we develop that engagement and you will encompass all pupils right from the get-go. So reducing your workload, really thinking about how 
you can build that in to the betterment of all pupils within your class. So if we go back to that training, I don't think you should be doing this training, this training, let's spend a term on SEN. Because again, you're kind of saying it's a separate thing. What you really want, and if I'm going to just take that 17% up to 20%, in every module you do, 20% of that should be about SEN. So if you want to do talk about behavior in the classroom, 20% supporting SEN. If you want to do training on English, 20% SEN. Training in how to improve maths, 20% S. That's to me, is it kind of has to. But what you will find is in that section, you'll have a lot of repeating from the English, from the maths, from this, from this, or repeating that good practice. Because again, it's just reinforcing. Whereas if you do it as a separate thing, you're still saying to think of this separately, not this is part of everything, which is that inclusive part is if I'm going to lead on maths, I'm leading on maths for every pupil. If I'm leading on English, I'm leading on every pupil. If I'm the key stage lead. I'm key stage lead for every pupil, not all these pupils. And that's the Senko's job. It's every pupil. I think that's, you know, in, in some ways you're right, Del. I think it's that acknowledgement that it is just, it's present. Yep. You know, it's not going to go away. It's present. And that is just that n- inherent variability in all your students. So, you know, having work, planned a curriculum of work for last year, thinking you can use it again straight away with the students that are coming in is, is you know, actually, when we think about it, that's really the challenge of teaching, isn't it? It's why, why we, we constantly sort of almost reinvent the wheel, because the pupils we have in front of us are guiding us in how we can best support them. So by building in flexibility, will support more students. So what you're saying there, that good practice that you'll see in maths, in English, you know, you'll hear it in all those different trainings you get. But actually building in flexibility in all of your subjects, in all of your, so that's why we were, were really pleased to see adaptive teaching starting to really take off rather than differentiation, because that othering with differentiation was, was problematic to some extent. Not that there isn't a need for some young people will still need something completely different to other young people. However, for the majority, building in that adaptive response, uh, proactive support will support more young people. So building that flexibility. So it's a challenge more in secondary, I do acknowledge, as that changes every lesson. But as a school, if you're building in those broader universal approaches within the classrooms, within the learning environment, within the kind of provision of that learning, that will really help young people feel they've been considered from the beginning. It will develop that belonging, that, those psycholo- psychologically safe environments where they can take risks, they can, they can feel like they can push and they can showcase their strengths. We're still working from some kind of deficit model when we start talking about SEN, unfortunately. Yep. You know, as soon as I say, oh, I've got an autistic student, you know, there's still going to be people thinking, oh, well, they won't be able to communicate. They won't be able to give eye contact. You know, that we're still unfortunately kind of stuck in some of those deficit models, whereas actually that's not my experience. My last school was an autistic special setting and, oh boy, could they give eye contact? You know, when you think about, you know, all of the myths that are still out there. So we're, we're breaking those down. But if you build that flexibility in, you're giving young people a chance to demonstrate how they learn, a chance to demonstrate their understanding by harnessing their strengths and really allowing them to thrive and to flourish. So when we think about differentiation, it's very much saying, it's a really visible way of saying to young people, I planned this lesson and then I thought of you and I've given you this. If we think back to, you know, the student 
the dyslexic students we've probably taught who when we were told, you know, they work better on yellow paper. So everyone gets a white piece of paper and then you present the yellow to the dyslexic student who, yes, it probably helped them, but straight away feel completely othered by it. So it's about considering how we can do that. Technology is a really big part of that. And I, I want to touch on that a little bit more later. But we as teachers really have those skills, empathy, compassion, knowing our young people and being able to find those barriers and break them down for everybody. So building already into your curriculum, letting young people have tech that allows them to change the size of the wording, allows the change in the colour of the background if that's going to benefit them, allows them to take a picture of something so they can come back to it. Having manipulatives out on the desk in maths right the way through secondary school having times table charts on the wall, all of these things will benefit young people and they will be used by the people who need to use them without having to be asked for. So there's definitely that flexibility and that all links to good pedagogy. And all teachers have a really good understanding of pedagogy. That's one thing our teacher training does brilliantly. We really, really understand those effective teaching practice that really facilitate student learning and engagement. And we can harness that in the deliberate planning, organisation and delivery of instruction in a way that meets the diverse needs of learners, really promotes critical thinking and fosters that really positive learning environment. So there are a number of ways we can, we can go about that. So clear learning outcomes, really having really clearly defined learning outcomes, really help students to cue into what they're supposed to be learning, helps them to know and understand, be able to do by the end of that lesson. So as a teacher, we have full control of that in our lesson. However, we have to be really careful that we are assessing what we think we're assessing. Because if you put a clear outcome up there of, say, for example, understanding the life cycle of a frog, if you want children to demonstrate how they understand the life cycle of a frog, if you give them a blank piece of paper and ask them to write about it, inadvertently, what you're testing is their ability to write in a clear and coherent way, not necessarily tell you but what they understand about the life cycle of a frog. So you've got to be thinking, what am I wanting to test? What am I, how am I going to enable this in means that are adaptable and flexible? So they could draw the life cycle of a frog. They could create a PowerPoint. They could find a YouTube video and edit it to show the bits and, that they want and how that works. They could create a stop motion animation. They could use fruit to represent each stage of the life cycle of a frog. They could be, they could create a rap song if that was their area of interest. Who knows? And if we don't, as teachers, give them that opportunity to be creative, we'll never know how creative they can be. And if they're flexible in determining in how they demonstrate their outcomes with multiple means of expression, I'll touch on a bit of UDL on Universal Design for Learning as we go through as well. But those multiple means of expression mean that that young person has agency, ownership of their learning. And when you have that agency and ownership, you, you can flourish because you feel fully part of it. So again, clear outcomes, but really being sure that what you're assessing is what you're assessing, is what you want to. You're not assessing something else like oracy or writing skills and giving them that freedom, which really generates a buzz in the classroom. So that flexibility is is. It's more the more flexible than people think, because so often I go, I, talk, I listen to my daughter's school, I, I see schools, and I hear things. And basically, if I asked them why do you do that, they often they couldn't actually answer. 
or they just say it's the way we've always done it, which generally means I don't know. But the last person did it as we're doing it. And there's certain things I think there are practices in schools which I see are because of maybe that teacher's preference or maybe it's the previous teacher's preference and they're just repeating it, but not actually looking at actually is, is, is what we do in this situation, is the way we do this, is I do this, is it actually, what is the benefit, what is the cost? There's a load of that, and I don't just even mean lessons. I mean in assemblies, in this, in this, in this. What actually is the benefit and what is the cost? And often that cost is SEN children are uncomfortable or struggling or not fitting in. It's not great for them. And when we think about that is, and you talked about diagnosis and multiple diagnosis, and children can struggle in schools, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. In other settings, they're perfectly fine. So, yes, they have all these diagnoses, and you can have an alphabet. You can list for them. I have ASD, ASD, you know. But, yeah, here I'm fine. It's only in school I'm not. So is, is the environment can have a big impact. So if he's fine there but not here, what, actually, is there something you can change? There's a load of regulations you cannot change. I get that. But actually, within that, can you work within that? Can you be more flexible? Can you change how you do something to make it work better but just going back on the way you assess is years ago there are two assessment points that i remember in b squared years gone past the first one was when shown a picture makes an appropriate animal noise so if that's now says they can make animal noises they're physically able to but actually are we assessing their, their the how good their tiger noise is or how good their quack is why well, are we really just assessing that they know ducks quack and tigers roar? So is it a case of you need to actually, I felt your quack was a little more other bird. It wasn't quacky enough. Or actually, are you really saying, and they're saying, so they, it was, a, it was a, a child who was, couldn't speak and they had buttons. You show them a picture of a duck. They went, hang on. They're not labeled. That's the quack. And they hit So they know. And it's that cognitive ability. And the other one we had was, observes the changing colours of autumn. Well, if you're visually impaired, you're not going to be able to do that one either. So we've just, with that assessment point, we excluded pupils. But then we, I talked to schools and they go, well, we didn't do that, but we got what you meant. Yeah. So what we did is we took them out and felt different leaves. A nice soft leaf, a crunchy leaf. And they've got this, things change. So we've learned that actually we, we often, in our older assessments, we've chosen a, often a physical way of demonstrating a cognitive ability. So going back to your discussion on the life cycle of frogs, again, just by saying, write it down, we've we've not actually, after that, it's not really about frogs. 10% is about frogs. Then you've got structuring, ordering, yeah, things like that. And the spelling, the spacing, the this, the that. The frog part becomes... It's like when you're trying to teach a child to use a mouse. And I love the fact that we don't, we have touchscreens now. Yeah. If I want to touch, if I want something to open, I click on it and it opens. Years ago, we had this strange thing connected to a computer. That if I moved <laughs> on a desk, something on this monitor moved at the same time, but not quite at the same speed, which is always a bit odd. And there's a button on it and I click on that, and it, but there's two buttons. So it's, it's, it was a cognitive barrier of using that computer. Bring in a touchscreen, I can do it all. So we have to think, are we putting barriers, as you said, barriers in the way that are preventing children from sharing what they know because it's not how they are able to share it? 
And it links back to my, my point earlier on intersectionality as well, because what you were talking about there, you know, the tiger and the, the sheep and whatever else, the duck quacking, you know, you've got cultural knowledge there that some young people may not have. You know, they may never have seen a tiger. They may never have heard what a tiger sounds like. Are, are you then limiting them because they, you've never taught them that? Yes. They've never seen one, you know. So th there are different barriers that we've got to kind of realise. You know, I remember talking to a, a teacher who said, I, I was trying to teach poetry and we thought we'd pick the beach. It was a great idea for poetry because there's so many sight sounds, you know, that we can bring in in form of poetic language and realised that, Two thirds of the class had never been to a beach. How do you write about a beach and the feel of the sand under your toes and the noise of the waves? And if you've never been, yep. and so again, these barriers, that intersectionality. That's why really thinking about your inclusion, designing for the margins. If you want to start de delivering poetry about beaches, the first thing you've got to do is really <laughs> understand where your children are starting from. And think about that. So active learning is really key in this, really providing those opportunities for them to interact with each other, with the environment around them, and be able to have those problem-solving tasks that really, and project-based learning that puts them in that environment so that they can really think about that deeper understanding, that application of knowledge, those higher-order thinking skills, including that holistic development. We're not just academically focused. We should be thinking about that holistic development of young people, you know, developing that cultural, that social capital, that understanding of how the world works. I used to love taking them outside to look at the numbers in the environment, you know, and seeing how many numbers there are. What does this mean on a post box? What does this mean in your local post office? What, you know, let's go and have a look at the church, look at some of the gravy. What, what are these numbers? They're everywhere, you know, so really putting it into their minds that, what we are teaching them is something for life. This is preparation for adulthood. And that, as we know from the code of practice, starts from the earliest years. But for young people to really grasp what this data is important. So, you know, for thinking about, you know, if we're starting to analyze giant data sets, for example, in maths, you know, the teacher might come in, as you said, you know, with your animals and your noises, it's like the teacher might come in and go, oh, here's a great data set on cars. Out of those 30 pupils in the class, how many are actually interested in cars? How many are actually going to go, oh, great, this is really interesting? Actually going, right, we're going to analyze some data. I want you to go onto the, inter you know, the internet, use it, find some data on something that's interesting. It could be Pokemon, it could be Taylor Swift, it could be football, it could be anything. But you've developed that flexibility. They're still going to do all the analysis you want. They're still going to do the mathematical bits that you're interested in, but they're going to do it on something that actually motivates them. So really thinking about that active learning, getting pupils involved in, in that agency and that ownership. As you said, Del, you know, they're, they're not fine in school, but they're fine in this environment because actually they're engaged and motivated in that environment. Suddenly they're in a school setting where maybe they're not learning about something that particularly interests them, you know, and, I'm, you know, the curriculum is there and, you know, teachers do a great job. They, they have curriculum that they're told to teach and, and they do a fascinating job of doing it. But find the areas within there that they get really passionate about and work through that. Or find a method, a flexibility in, okay, we're going to learn about the Victorians. We're going to learn about the workhouses. Okay, how are you going to present something about the workhouses? And like you say, some children might create a whole script and a whole, you know, that might be an area that really fascinates them. The development of a play and, and role playing, 
someone else might actually just want to sit and write a narrative about from a first person point of view of what it feels like to be a young person in the in a workhouse but it's finding that adapt those adaptations you can do really thinking about providing access of multiple means of representation just showing videos showing books looking on the internet allowing pupils to find their way into that VR headset I mean oh, we borrowed a set once from a university if you're a school out there get in touch with your local university or colleges they often have them for their courses on design or we borrowed a set and our young people having used these were so thrilled that their oracy developed their their literacy developed their their need to communicate what they'd seen really gave them that engagement and motivation to try so it's moving beyond that it's thinking about flexibility that we have from from all the technology that we have so you know you talked about assessment you know if we're starting to think about even you know regular and ongoing assessment is really crucial knowing where your pupils are at but it doesn't have to be the type you were just talking about it doesn't have to be fixed it could be those kahoot quizzes it could be pair and share it could be using some of the ai technology that's out there that's being developed so pupils are working at their own pace and getting that regular feedback of where there are and teachers getting that regular feedback as well so they can really put those interventions in the place that's really supportive and immediate and that would benefit all pupils especially those with SEN so we're saying it's vital for some valuable for all we need to build all of that in to our learning and and again that metacognition is really crucial so thinking enabling young people to know how best they learn to know more about themselves is is essential for life and, you know, over COVID, we, we kind of, well, we forced them to think, to learn in a different way. They were suddenly at home. They were suddenly in a setting they never used to have to learn in. And I'm pretty sure the majority of young people I taught, whether that was online or providing them with information, did not sit at a desk, at their chair, straight back, with their feet flat on the floor, with their hands folded, listening to it. No. They probably lay on the floor with their feet in the air. They were probably on their bed. They, they, they were probably not even looking at the screen. They were just listening. However, they, they might have rewound it. They might have stopped it. They might have said, oh, I'll come back to this later. I'm not really in, in the space to take this on board. But if we think about our classrooms, if we go back 20 years, 50 years, 100 years, have they changed that much? Whereas the real world around us has really changed. You know, the powers of those supercomputers that they have in their hands, that they take around with them, really has made the need for that knowledge and recall almost irrelevant to some of our pupils. Because, well, I can look that up. And so we need to be engaging with their strengths and their talents to expand those through the curriculum. The curriculum is just a, a driver for us developing those skills. So really focusing as teachers, reducing that workload by focusing on that ability to be flexible within our classrooms and allowing young people to be creative and autonomous and have agency, which can be really scary as a teacher. It can be because we're used to having to be in control. We're told that that's the best way. That's what a classroom should look like. Children sat in rows quietly learning while we talk. That is not how the majority of our children learn. And we know from the statistics on attendance, a lot of children are voting with their feet, that this is not an environment that is suiting their needs. 
So really considering that use of technology, and that's a really big area, you know, beyond assistive technology. Assistive technology is amazing, but so few schools are using it. Um, we've got project running at the moment with 150 schools who are, and a lot of them, it's really quite shocking that as you, you know, it, you know, I know I've got three screens at home. I, I have one thing, I have my emails on one. I've got my work on both different screens. I'm researching and but in schools there are schools that it's a complete ban on technology and you know we've got young people for whom that technology is vital to be able to as I say take a picture of the board to come back to or to be able to enlarge that text in the textbook without having to have someone take it to a photocopier and make it bigger or you know and without othering they can use the technology to really support them and the schools that have gone through our went through the pilot program exactly that young people are are taking ownership of how they get that support. They're reducing that support from other adults in the room to their own support. And actually, that is preparation for life. They are going to have the, you know, I think back to my teacher, you know, when I was at school saying, oh, you'll never carry a calculator around with you all the time. And look, look what we've got. We've all got computers we carry around with us. So, you, yes. I always like adding in at that moment is, and I, I remember being told this not long ago, is, we are preparing children for jobs who do not exist yet. So yes. we're on a podcast. Now I went to school in the eighties. Podcasts were not around then. It's not a job. No, and, <laughs> Web and design, I know not a job. <laughs> I know we're recording this on your birthday. Happy birthday, Dale, but you don't look like you went to school in the eighties. Can I just put that out there? But as long right. as I'm gonna say nineties, not seventies, I'm happy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, Good. And but you're right. We don't know. But what we do know is the pace of this technology is is not being and, and the, the power and the potential is not being harnessed in our classrooms to support our teachers with workload and to support our young people to make the progress that they need at the time that they need it. So there is an absolute need for some investment, I think, on a tech. And that is part of the, it's the access is part of the problem in a lot of schools. But also that level of understanding and training for staff, because it, it, there is a, a training issue there as well, so that we're building that in. And our younger members of the profession who've grown up, like we haven't, Dale, but those younger members of the profession who have grown up with technology, you know, it's something they've always had. They're, they're going to start bringing that into the classroom, hopefully. Yes. They're the ones who are going to be pushing that, but they need our current leadership, our current profession, you know, our older, like you say, I've been in over 20 years, people like me to go, actually, we need to start listening to this. Actually, we need to start building that in and bringing that forward. What's really interesting is I think when I went to school, we had stuff in school we didn't have at home. And that's what made it exciting. Yeah. You'd access to textbooks. You'd learn about things you couldn't do at home. Now, my parents were really fortunate. They did the whole Children's Britannica, and we had that on a bookshelf. So whenever I had to do my homework, I remember sitting on the landing at the top of the stairs, going through whichever books I needed, pulling out for it. We had encyclopedias, but most people didn't. Yeah, so if you wanted to learn something or you wanted to experience something you haven't, you went to school. So therefore, school was really interesting because it exposed you to things you didn't have. Now it's the opposite. Now I think we have a world where the internet with videos and experiences and information, if I want to learn about anything, I can learn it without a school. Yeah, that is the bottom line. 
If I want to learn how to tie a tie, I'm going to watch a YouTube video. If I want to be a better speaker, if I want to be able to present better, I'm going to go find a Udemy course and pay £20 and learn it. If I am a child and I want to learn about rockets, I'm going to be bored in school when we finally get to rockets because I'm way past that. I'm going to go do my own research at home. So we've now hit this thing where actually school is miles behind. And we've got this standardised... I think this is the problem with secondary. We have this standardised curriculum which is out of date and out of touch. We're still doing Romeo and Juliet because it's important according to someone. And I know there are people who love that. And I know I always bash Romeo and Juliet. I have issues with, I have, I have a trauma PTSD from a year nine with Romeo and Juliet and I can't get past that ever. But going back to, if you love it, you love it. If you hate it, you hate it. So basically what they really assessed is how much I loved Romeo and Juliet, not my ability in any way. So we really need to get to the point, and I'm hoping maybe with AI coming in, that we can get away from these standardised tests that we are doing, that everyone has to answer the same question in the same way. It's about conforming to actually, can we find a way that children work on a project that they are interested in, but they have to meet various things, and we can use AI or somehow a way of assessing their abilities, their understanding, their knowledge, their depths, their presentation, their this, around that area, rather than do they like Romeo and Juliet or not? I think, I think it comes back to the point I made a little earlier about the curriculum is just a vehicle. Yes. It's not the driver. The curriculum is a vehicle for you developing all of those skills that young people are going to need for life. So in a bit of a defence to William Shakespeare, who's I absolutely still adore, I didn't do Romeo and Juliet at school, but in a bit of defense to Romeo and Juliet, it teaches, it's an opportunity to develop those relationship understanding, to think about, you know, family dynamics. It's an opportunity to explore the human condition. That's what the focus is, not the play. So it's about almost becoming that engineer of learning it's that universal design for learning that I do encourage you all to go and look at the cast website and have a look at that it's amazing but it's that really considering why you are teaching not just the what the why and what you're aiming to get out of that because like you say I don't know how you were taught it but again it's that now write what happens in scene two and how the characters interact Actually, let's all do a role play. Let's, someone's going to do a video about it. Someone's doing animation. And there's so many availabilities like ATEC now where you can, you know, speech to text. So for young people, as you know, we often have a, a lot of dyslexic learners in the past who were fabulously verbal, but we didn't have the technology to capture that. So again, it's finding a way of thinking about what is it you're aiming for, not just the what of teaching, the how and the why. And how are you going to build that flexibility? And so pupils, like you said, if you're really interested in, you know, if you're really interested in art, for example, if you're a fantastic artist and you want to be able to draw, then actually for Romeo and Juliet, right, draw what happens, draw the relationships. How would you symbolize those emotions? So it's harnessing and developing young people in the areas they want to develop. Like you say, they want to go into the arts or computing, but it's also... the great thing about education is, is there's an equity there of we're all going to have this experience. How else would we get it? Because you, you're right, Dale, that, you know, if you want to learn something, you can go and buy that. You can go and access 
that's not the reality for some of our young people still. And we know through the cost of living crisis that poverty is actually having a really big impact, especially where I'm based. I'm up in the northeast of England. We know that is having a huge impact on a lot of our young people. So by coming into school, they're getting access to to understanding knowledge, experiences that they maybe didn't have the opportunity to do at home. So I, I agree that for a lot of our children, what they have at home is better than what we can provide in schools. But for a lot, that really still isn't the case. And that intersectionality, really understanding where your students are coming from and providing that should be the job of schools. And unfortunately, cost of living, things like school trips, school residentials, the opportunity where staff, you really get to know young people there. You really get them and they get to know you as a person, as a human being. And we all get to interact at that level. They're sadly disappearing due to that lack of funding. But again, I think there is relevance in all of the curriculum that we teach, but it's knowing the relevance and that is the key, not the curriculum itself. Yes. So really finding the why, you know, and careers, you know, I I look back and I think we had no careers teaching at school. We didn't know about all these different careers. So, you know, the vast majority of my friends went to be teachers, doctors, lawyers, accountants, because, you know, I didn't know there were such amazing jobs in the theatre. That wasn't a background I was aware of. So as teachers, we have a, a, a real privileged role in developing those aspirations for all young people and giving them access to what that world looks like. And that's what we should be focused We're preparing them for adulthood. We're not preparing them for the SATs. We're not preparing them for GCSEs. We're not preparing them to tick the boxes to get the certificates. We're preparing them for life. And we've got to be thinking that life might look very different than ours did. And our lives, as you said, look very different than we imagined when we were at school. So that's a really real challenge for staff within schools. But that's what we're preparing them for. And those skills of evaluation, analysing, social skills, holistic skills we need to provide our young people. And unfortunately, with some of the the way the accountability measures work, it goes against that. So as a teacher, you do have control. You do have these conflicting pressures almost sometimes. And, and, and I totally get that. But these skills will come if you harness that engagement and motivation. They will achieve those levels because they'll be engaged and motivated. So finding the ways of doing that and harnessing their strengths will make teaching a delight and will make young people absolutely flourish and the results will come so it's really very much about that for me that that was what I always wanted in my classroom I wanted that flow I wanted those young people to have a level of challenge within this kind of within their pushing it a little bit giving them opportunities to have to expand that to have opportunities to fail and go that's okay because this is we're trying something completely new we're doing something different, but that relies also on leadership to have that faith in their teaching profession and their young teachers. I was I was talking to some ECT teachers a little while back, March time, and you know one of them said, "I came in with this idea," and they went, "No, we don't do that here." And you're like, "Ah, you know, that's so frustrating because actually they're the young ones coming in. They're fresh out of uni. They're fresh out with all these new skills and new ideas." Let them try. And that, Let saying, them try it. I feel we've kind of just got stuck repeating the last 30, 40 years of education. And there are people coming in who want to change it, being told, no, as you said, that's not what we do here. And I think one of the things that 
is probably one of my biggest superpowers in my life is being curious. And that's one thing that I am seeing less and less of that in my children and in younger generations, I just feel with my children, I have to give it to them on a plate. It has to be delivered to them. I'm finding they're not going out and finding it themselves unless they really have an interest. And that's one thing that I don't know where that comes from. I don't know the magic, but it's that being curious. But then that comes back to being relevant and interesting and things like that. But curiosity, because you talked about how if you do something, they will, um, the VR, the oracy and the literacy, because they wanted to share it. And that's the thing is if you have that curiosity, you go and investigate the skills you learn just by being curious are unlimited. Yeah. And, and I think as well, there's a, there has been a decline. We know from evidence that arts and creative subjects have lessened across a lot of secondary school and a lot of primary schools because of the demands of the accountability measures. And there is so much you can do with singing. Singing develops literacy in a fun, non-threatening way. It develops literacy. You've got the words on the screen, you know, karaoke, great for advancing literacy. You know, we've lost sight of why we did those things. We thought it was, oh, we all sang a hymn in, in, in assembly in the morning. Actually, great for developing literacy, great for developing that sense of belonging, that social cohesion. And all these art subjects have a place in developing other aspects of, of learning. And so it's really, as you say, it's going back to understanding why we have a broad and balanced curriculum, because we need young people to be able to develop all of their skills across all of it. Now, we teach it in discrete pockets. But that's what I'm saying. You know, if you're in art, you've got to be really careful if you're asking children to write down everything all the time because you'd actually, you know, their English is then impacting, their level of literacy is impacting. Whereas actually, you know, there are sound recordings. You can, you can record a video about it. You can, it, there are so many different ways now that we can, we can evidence what young people think and do and, and produce. So it's, it's very much about building that in, I think, because you're right, we can't change the world from here, Dale, as much as we'd like to, you know, from here. But really thinking about implementing those, that universal design for learning, upping that universal provision, really cultivating that culture of inclusivity and where diversity is celebrated and embraced and the norm that we are all diverse, that we are all different and different people need different things and we can provide that and they're all available for everybody. There's nothing worse. I mean, some of our schools, you know, oh yes, we have iPads and we give them out to the children with SEN and you're like, oh, okay, this has become the next sheet of yellow paper. Oh yes, the child with the laptop. And you know, and the child doesn't want them want to use it because they don't want to feel different. So having providing for all young people and they will that metacognition, they will find how best they learn. They will choose it. But I think you're right, curiosity. I'm I'm I think I'm very similar to you. I'm I'm terribly curious. I'm quite dangerous when I'm bored because (laughs) I I, you know, I have to find something new and different and I'm always kind of thinking about things. And I think we've, we've fallen into this trap of, of telling young people, well, we did have this trap of telling young people, I think, that learning only happens in a classroom with a teacher, that you can't do any of it anywhere else. And COVID blew that out of the water. 
It yep. absolutely blew it out the water. We said, you know what? You can learn equally well in your bedroom, in your kitchen, on the living room floor. You can learn equally well there. And then we forced them all back into classrooms and saying, this is how you learn now. And we wonder why we've got a huge rise in absence and a huge rise in young people not comfortable in their environment. And so I think, you know, we, yeah, that was a real opportunity. When we look back, that was a real opportunity to go, whoa, okay, look what we've managed to do. This is interesting, isn't it? Unfortunately, everyone just went, can we please just go back to normal? But for young people and those who are voting with their feet, normal is not suiting them. One size fits all teaching and one size fits all schools are not working. We, can we not call it normal? Can we call it the way we used to do it? Way we used, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I hated school. The whole of my secondary life, I generally hated it uh, for multiple reasons, but the subjects were boring. They were slow. I didn't know with Romeo and Juliet what actually I was supposed to be getting out of it. And there's a load of things around actually what the objective lesson really would help help me at that point. But it was, and if you read my reports, max I was maximum attainment, minimum effort. It was all too easy, but I was never pushed. And again, I think that's got better in some places, but not every places. So I hated school. And then I went to college because that's what you do. And I hated that too. And I had a place at university and I just went, no. So in my head, I hated learning. However, all I have ever done in every job is I am curious and I have learned and I haven't stopped learning in the 20 something years since I left college. All I do is learn every single day. I am curious. I am learning. Now, some of that is for my job. Some of it is I read something in the news and go, what is that? And I do a bit of research around it and go, Oh, that's interesting. I learn. I'm curious. But that wasn't what happened when I was at school. And hopefully some things have got better. And I know for my daughters, some things have got better. But I do feel that curiosity. And I remember going, I remember reading my reports on my parents' evenings. Dale's done the minimum effort. And my response was, but I did everything you asked. And I just, I didn't understand that I perhaps should have done more. I should have used my curiosity and investigated, gone further. But it's like, but, and it was just, it's a really weird answer. And it was kind of, it was put on me. That was my fault. I now look back and go, oh, okay, maybe it wasn't actually. There are reasons and stuff. But yeah, some things we've improved a lot over the last 20, 30 years. Other bits we've gone backwards. And also, I, I think, and you, that, that, you mentioned that the assemblies with the hymns and the literacy. The phonological awareness is as you're reading those words, you mm -hmm. learn the patterns of the sounds, which then helps you pick up the words and read and how to say words you've never handled before. So there's the big benefit. Now, the cost was it was really boring. Cool. How can we get the benefit? How can we make that more fun? So my daughter's school at primary school, they were singing George Ezra songs. They were singing whoever else. They were singing modern songs that the kids enjoyed. Now, you have to choose those songs you obviously wouldn't do the ketchup song or Zig Zig R from the Spice Girls because that's just repeating the same words over and over again. You would choose ones which actually had lyrics and told a story and were interesting, maybe not Stan by Eminem, but you would choose songs which fit and that that your kids will enjoy. And that way, again, they're singing a song they like, 
but they're learning, but you don't tell them they're learning. You don't tell them, absolutely. You, no, you're absolutely right. In fact, there's a, one of the projects that got the Star Award for to develop literacy, and they were using grime and rap songs with Key Stage 3 pupils to develop literacy. And exactly as you've said, you know, they didn't probably didn't realise they were doing literacy. They're doing this fun project that's to do with, oh, grime and rap, the things that we're kind of interested in. And you hope as well, and it comes to that co-production, doesn't it? And I think that sense of agency, you know, where our young people have got to start being active participants in this. And that, like you said there, your your learning comes from your agency. You read something. I mean, we watched a documentary on freediving last night because I'd read something in the newspaper about freediving. I was really fascinated by it. So then we started, we watched a documentary about it. And, you know, that's, I'm, as you say, but... To some people, or as we're taught to believe in school, that's not learning. That's not learning unless it's in a formal classroom and there's some kind of outcome and there's an assessment and there's something you're working towards. No, it's learning. And, you know, having that opportunity to really engage young people. I mean, I think back and I'm, uh, I, I don't remember too, I really enjoyed school. Um, I'm very different. Yeah, I loved school. I loved school. I loved school. I loved my primary school. I loved secondary but I was, I was talking to my husband the other day and I said, you know what I remember about year six? And we think about what year six might remember as we're coming to the end of term here was my, my own project. I got to choose a project and it was about Greece. And I investigated everything, the food, the culture. The, and every time I finished a bit of work and teachers will go, children, finish work because you're always expected to give them something deeper to think about. There is kind of no finish. It was going, you can get on with your project. And I just loved it I can still see the book I can still remember the feeling of going off and doing something I was interested in and that's what we've kind of lost within some of our classrooms you know so there's great projects the the extended projects that you can do with first sixth form that are all about them taking a project they're interested in and doing it and it's it's equivalent to an A-level but it's about what they're interested in it's amazing so you just you know I, I think if we're giving an A-level for something where children can investigate something they're interested in, why is that not something we're doing lower down the school? And really having that, that opportunity for, for them to show us who they are as well and what they're interested in. I did, at the end of year five, a project on Marco Polo. And I, like you, that was one of the most fun things I did. I loved project work. I researched, I remember sitting on top of the landing with the books and he, and I researched and I made a big poster. I drew things, I wrote things. It, I absolutely loved projects. And I think my daughter, my daughter in year six was doing something on the Romans and my daughter ended up making clothes for cats based on Romans because she loved cats. And so she took something she was in, but she went for it. And she's like you, like me. When you finish, go do your project. So she would get through her work as quickly as possible to get onto her project, and she loved the project. Secondary school, no projects. It's exam-based. There's not even any coursework in most subjects anymore. It's purely exams. And with the curriculum we've got to get through and the exam syllabus and the pressures to get those grades, project work in a lot of schools has been pushed out. But now she's got to her A-levels. Now she's doing projects. Now she's enjoying it. Now she's researching, now she's learning, now she's creating, and she is really passionate. And at least once a week, she either comes down to share what she's doing in her graphic work, in her geography. She is excited by what she's doing. And that wasn't there in secondary. And I think, you you know, it's a difficult age. 
secondary was where I started. It's a difficult age for for young people, yes. and where where you know we have a huge mental health issue across secondary. I know it's going down into primary, but across secondary schools, and there's so much pressure. Everything has to be measured. Everything has to be achieved. Everything. So, you know, there is an issue there. And I think as teachers, we have to recognize that and be able to kind of almost shelter them from a little bit of that within the classroom and give them those opportunities to thrive and and understand and be understanding of them and give them the opportunity to ask those questions. There was nothing better than in my lesson. You know, I remember one young man who said to me, we were talking about money and he said, how much actual physical money is there in the world? And, you know, I was like, wow, that is a cracking question. And my favorite saying, and my, my, my ex-students will tell you, was, was let me Google that because I would literally, there are other search engines available, but you know, I, I was fascinated when they were fascinated in, with something, we went with it because that is developing their curiosity. If I said, oh, I don't know, get back on with your work. That kid's going to go, oh, okay, That I don't matter. I don't matter. Not my question does, I don't matter. Miss yep. isn't interested enough to, to take my question on board and actually do something with it. So I think as teachers, we've, you know, again, it's back to that awesome level of privilege that we have to be that champion. If anyone's ever watched Rita Pearson's video, you know, every child needs a champion. It's a TED Talk. It's amazing. You have that opportunity to be that teacher. You have that opportunity to really influence a child's life and really develop their aspirations, really allow them to be themselves, them, their true, authentic selves within the classroom. And that has its challenges. But that is our job. That is our job to embrace those challenges and and be there to really support that. Well, I think that's like, to me, I use the term, you go down the rabbit hole. Mm. So I'm interested in something off. I, you went down the free driving rabbit hole. Yeah. And actually... I'm kind of curious about how much money there is in the world. And that's like a two hour rabbit hole where I am <laughs> reading and learning. But as I'm doing that, I'm picking up skills. I'm literally going, actually, this website is a load of rubbish. And then I'm picking up things on that website, which I'll then use in the future to tell me if that's. So there's loads of little skills I'm developing, which are nothing about actually how much money is in the world. It's my research skills, it's my understanding. All those sorts of things I'm finding out and I will finally find out or I won't find out how much physical money in the world and how I can fit it all in Wembley Stadium or actually it's not even that it's not even that much or it's a lot bigger. But that is something that curiosity teaches me a load of skills and I go down that rabbit hole and I spend my life going down rabbit holes. It is the best part. And John, who I work with, is I think Captain Rabbit Hole. But he's Captain Rabbit Hole to the nth degree. And what I love about John is he then shares it with us. And sometimes what he's talking about, I'm really not interested in, but what I love seeing every time is that passion. So I will ask questions, even though I sometimes don't care, because you, you cannot not ask him questions to me, because he is just so passionate about it. And it just drives him. And that's the sort of thing I want to see in my children. I want to see them passionate about something that they want to then go and do. And as a teacher, when you witness that, when you witness that student, that growth, that success they're getting from, from whatever it is they're engaged with, you know, that, that's the sense of fulfillment that really transcends those boundaries of workload that really make the job worthwhile. And it really allows you, you know, that opportunity to witness the impact you're making on their lives. 
really fostering that passion within them fosters your passion for teaching because it goes beyond the classroom. It nurtures that collaborative, supportive learning community and beyond. We're talking about what do we eventually want? We want a socially inclusive society where everyone is enabled to reach their full potential and everyone's enabled to follow the paths that they want to do. And there was a school, oh, well, now I'm thinking, should I say this? There was a school I passed driving and it said learning learning without limits, something like that, three letter, you know. And I thought, oh, I'd love to go in and ask. Oh, so they can do Latin and music and drama for GCSE because I bet the answer will be no. So, you know, the, 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 as schools, we've got to acknowledge what it is that we're, we're kind of doing. But within that, really engage with the moral purpose of what we're doing and the understanding of why we're doing it and pass that on to students. As you said, you didn't know why you were learning about Romeo and Juliet. A teacher who said, actually, what this is really about here, Dale, is human relationships, you know, and being impulsive and where that can lead you. And, you know, and actually engaging with that, you might have gone, oh, okay. So it's not about these words that I don't understand this language that is just not connecting with me. You know, it's, it's actually about human feelings and emotions. And it's about understanding how the world works and how, you know, dynasties are created. It really helped you and possibly understand succession. If you've seen Romeo and Juliet and understand the nuances there, you watch succession, you go, oh, it's all happening again. So again, it's, schools engaging with that true purpose of what they are there for and really thinking about those pupils at the margins and preparing them for life so we always go off on tangents on the podcast and that's a bit i love and i have to remember no we're talking about a topic which is this so if we just bring it back to topic just to summarize is basically is the whole thing is about reducing teacher workload and including people from the get-go basically what we're really kind of talking about one of the things is the idea of how we're asking for work back how many things within our planning within our curriculum actually are excluding people because the way we've done it and what you're kind of saying is actually if we tweak a few of these if we say share information rather than write down information you're now opening opportunities in to people to share information what works for them yeah and it it it's that it's it's opening the doors of flexibility and multiple means of representation multiple means of expression multiple means of engagement that means that for teachers it kind of frees that up a bit I don't have to design a worksheet because actually my students are going to tell me or they're going to record it on their iPad and email it to me or they're going to create a mind map as a class as a complete class and then we'll take a photograph and they've all got it you know then they've got it on their phone so they can take that home when they're thinking about their home so it's it's freeing up some of that workload of oh I've got to create a workload a, a worksheet that's scaffolded for my pupils who are VI and I've got one for those who are dyslexic with bigger fonts and this type of you know it removes all of that because actually you're harnessing the power of going this is what I'm interested in I want my children to be able to create a narrative some are going to do, you know, oh, Tommy's chosen to do a comic book story. Someone else has chosen to use iMovie to create their own video using images or bits they found from the internet. Yeah, Whatever that is, it frees the teacher up to really focus on why and what they're doing. The how then kind of is in the agency of the young people. And you can put the support things in place, but the support is there for everybody. So in maths, for example, if you're teaching, you've got manipulatives out on the desk, you've got rulers, you've got number squares, you've, 
they're all there and young and keywords with diagrams. So young people can tap into that if they need to. But it's not creating extra workload because it's just there. Your PowerPoints all have the same, the right background and the right size font in the right contrast so young people can read it easier. It's just there. And it takes that workload out and you're actually focusing on the young people you've got in your class rather than the mythical average student. I suppose some people will worry about, well, if I haven't got it written down, it didn't happen or the whole moderation. There's things like that. But I, I think we need to evolve that. We can't just say, no, we do written because it's easy for me to check someone else is working. It's like, fine, that works for you. But that is basically you saying every child in this school has to do this. So it's better for me. That's got to change. The, there that is a has big, to change. Yeah, there is a big job to be done on 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 how assessment is is required. And even, you know, with the ATEC stuff, thinking about exactly, you know, a lot of the things we were asked about on the project was about access arrangements. When we were presenting, you know, it was like, oh, I, I've got this, can it be used in an exam situation? And, you know, that shouldn't be the focus. The focus should be, does it support the young person? And they can use it through life. Now, the exams are something completely different. Uh, it's a different, it's kind of almost the wrong way of thinking about it. Now, I will use the word normal again for when we talk about normal way of working, which is in the access arrangements, the ICE guide, that, you know, that that hasn't caught up with the technology that's available. So the, the, I know from Ofqual that they are working on that. And there is a lot of talk around exam boards, looking at, you know, assessments that can be as, accessed in different ways. But again, you know, we were talking on the ATEC project. We had a, a teacher who said, We've just this young man in in year one, he was really frustrated. He was getting to the point of not wanting to come to school. He was that frustrated. And we've just given him speech to text ability. He is buzzing, was her words. He is buzzing because he now can put his work up on the wall with the other young people where it was so difficult for him to write. He is now able to print off. He took his work home to his parents to show them his work, said this is a first because suddenly that young man's life has changed. And that is where we need to get to where they're using technology is not cheating. It's not cheating. Using technology in order to understand and to be able to communicate is vital for some valuable for all and that is where we we need to get to within our settings and that can take the whole conversation i keep coming back to in my head about we really change the organization of english into like creating and understanding because again all that stuff about comprehension is based under the word decoding and reading but comprehension can be from what there's loads of things i think we need to really transform english in the way it's organized to help us think about when we're comprehending it doesn't have to be written and when we're structuring things, again, it doesn't have to be written out on a piece of paper. And we're seeing again, be, yeah. Sorry, Del. It can be done in lots of different ways. You're still using the same skills. I always use Stephen Hawking as my example. If you're having a conversation with Stephen Hawkins, he would communicate via his screen and the voice. Yeah. But he wrote his books in the same way. It wasn't completely two different sets of skills. It's like, Two different things. It's he used the same medium to communicate and to write his book, but the skills he used were completely different. Yes, and without that, without that ATEC, we would not have got the insights that we got. And that's a perfect, really great example. And you know, it's it's about developing confidence and independence. And we talk about those those other skills that schools are working on. And we had another member of the ATEC program who said, 
we have these young people who really struggle. They're now using the computers to do speech to text. Then they're playing it back to hear where the punctuation goes, you know, because they're hearing it back and they're going, oh, it, it didn't stop there. No, what do you need? Oh, I need a comma. And it's making sense. It doesn't yes. make sense when you write it. It only makes sense when either you read it out loud or you hear it read to you. And we have Immersive Reader completely free on all the Microsoft Office products and my, the 365 version that a lot of schools have. They're not even aware it's there and it's amazing. So being able to utilize that and develop that independence and confidence, again, that's supporting teachers because now you can concentrate on what they can do and the areas they need to develop rather than concentrate, oh, they haven't been able to write, you know, and it's, it's again, flexibility, building that in, giving them the tools for them to be successful is really key and that's for all pupils not just our pupils with SEM. Excellent and I'm going to end it there because we have talked for well over an hour. Some people may have done an extra lap of their park just to get to the end of this podcast (laughs) as they're listening but that's another thing some people are listening to this in the car and learning or walking around a park and learning not in a classroom. Wow. be happening. So thank you for coming on the show today, Zoe. It's been, I've loved it. I love talking about the things I'm passionate about and bashing Romeo and Juliet and someone defending it and me going, maybe, maybe they're right, but no. Okay. <laughs> and and Zoe's, Zoe's, Zoe's done something today on the, on the podcast. She's shared a link and that link she's given me is one of the other episodes. That's great. So that's great. So again, if you love this episode in the show notes, you'll find a link to one of our other episodes which really, again, reiterates the same point. And what I also know is there's a couple of podcasts coming after this and also some done recently, which are reiterating the exact same point from different angles. Yeah, we need to change. There needs to be change. We're behind on things. We need to catch up. And yes, we kind of got to wait for that to come from government and local authority. But within your own classroom, you do have that power. You can change how you do things. You can make children more curious just by with a couple of tweaks and the way you assess, the way you ask the information, again, you do have that power to change. So thank you for listening to the show. If you haven't subscribed already, click on that subscribe button. You can also follow us on all the social medias on Twitter at The Sendcast, on Facebook at The Sendcast, and on Instagram at The Sendcast. And we're also looking at the new threads, but that's a whole other thing. And if you're struggling to show progress, if your assessment process is overcomplicated, takes too long, or you just want to see what is available, have a look at the B-Squared website or book a free online meeting with me so I can take you through our products. We have a range of assessment products to help all schools show small steps to progress pupils' SEND. And if you're a school in England still confused by the engagement model, not sure about the pre-key stage plans or anything else around assessment, get in contact. You can also find out about our online training, our conferences, you can read our blog, you can watch my webinars. It is all on the B-Squared website. And you'll find a link to the website and to book a meeting with me in the show notes. And you'll also find my email address. So feel free to drop me an email with your thoughts, your suggestions, anything like that, your feedback. Please drop me an email. So thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of The Sendcast. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. And just one thing to add, do come along to our nascent website where you can join and be a member. Lovely to hear, sit here from you all. And you'll find links to that in the show notes too. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.